0: This is episode number 30, Turn Your Worst Adversities into Your Greatest Advantages with Rhonda Shortino. Welcome. My name is Ola Glowheed, and this is the Overcoming Odds Podcast, where you get a glimpse into the stories of adoptees and foster youth who have overcome adversity, suffering, and struggle in achieving their personal success. This podcast was built by you and for you to help you overcome adversity, suffering, and struggle in achieving your fullest potential. Before I introduce today's guest, I would like to make a brief announcement and invite all of our listeners to our upcoming seminar on June 23rd in Austin, Texas. A seminar where you'll have a chance to connect with hundreds of people who are going through a similar transformation that you are. A seminar where you'll hear from speakers from all over the country, including Jem Bricker, Anne Heffrin, Leslie Johnson, Adele Harris, Joshua Banks, Peter Stropel, and myself included. For more information, please go to overcomingodds.today forward slash Now. Now, let's get back to our guests unadoptable, a term that became a part of her identity at the age of seven. She said, my mother asked her neighbor to babysit while she went shopping, but she did not go shopping. Her clothes were packed, her car was loaded, and she moved out of state. She never came back. Without further ado, please welcome Rhonda Shortino. Rhonda, welcome to the show. If you don't mind, I would like you to start off by telling our listeners a little bit about your background and your upbringing and some of the reasons why you were in foster care.
1: I didn't ever get adopted. Mm -hmm. Um, As a matter of fact, when I was seven years old, I was labeled unadoptable. Um, So the short story is that um, the newness And novelty of having a baby wore off really quickly with my mother. So she asked a neighbor to babysit while she went shopping, but she did not go shopping. Her clothes were packed, her car was loaded, and she moved out of state.
2: Mm. And
1: she never came back. And so um, in those days, in the 1960s, um, if, if a social worker could find a family member who was willing to take the child. Um, You know, they basically just, you know, slowed the car down, pushed the kid out with the relative. And that was the end of that, like your case basically, you know, almost closed. And so I'm being facetious, but you get the point. Mm -hmm. It wasn't like it is now, you know, um, where there are continued services and so on. And so I was placed with maternal grandparents, my grandfather was mentally ill, and my grandmother was um, a, an alcoholic and an addict, and so we lived in a little shack about the size of maybe a two-car garage um, that didn't have working plumbing and, um, you know, no heat, no air conditioning. It was, it was pretty rough lots of times that we went without food mm-hmm. lots of times that that we had no electricity. Um, and so it, you know, it was a pretty, pretty rough upbringing. Um, I was abused, physically abused, emotionally, verbally. When I was 16, I emancipated. Um, I, I heard somewhere about emancipation, um, I sort of I, I related to what you shared about your story and that, you know, some somehow you heard or thought about, you know, oh, here's another option.
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: so I went I, I actually um, hitchhiked. I got rides down to the courthouse and and I waited all day and I didn't know you were supposed to go with a social worker or, you know, there was a, <laughs> a, a, a prescribed way to do it. You know, I just waited around and I talked to everybody and I and I asked if anybody knew about um, emancipation. Oh, my goodness, I was there all day, you know, I was hungry, I didn't have any money. Um, I, you know, I didn't have any food. And, and, you know, the day was going by and finally somebody took pity on me. I think it was a bailiff or somebody who took me back into a judge's chambers. And that judge said, OK, you want to emancipate. All right. Well, so you're going to need to have a job. You're going to need to have a place to live. You're going to have to come back here and show a paycheck you're going to have to show a utility bill
2: mm. for,
1: um, you know, that you have a place to live, mm-hmm. that you're paying utilities. You're going to have to have a checking account, a savings account. And you're going to have to have, uh, show that you have transportation, and then I'll grant your emancipation. And, and then I look back on it now, and I think, oh, my goodness, that guy was just trying to get rid of me. Um, you know, he just gave, here I'm a 15 year old kid and he gives me this laundry list of you need to have a job. You need to have this and that. Well, I just, to me, it was like, okay, okay. Yeah. Okay. Got it. Well, so I went back to the high school where I attended and, and I, I went to the office and I said, okay, so I need to get a job. Can you help me get a job? And, and they actually helped me, um, find two different interviews. One was with an insurance agent I didn't know what insurance was. I'm not even sure I could spell insurance, <laughs> and that, that man hired me, and so I saved every penny that I could save, and I bought a car. I bought a car before I had a driver's license. I had a checking account and savings account. You know, the judge didn't say how much money had to be in those accounts, mm-hmm. so what, you know, I I don't know if I had like five bucks, whatever I had, I had you know, the little, the little books to show that I had the, the accounts. And so about six months later, I went back to that judge and I had paycheck stubs and a pink slip for my little car. I didn't say what kind of a car, you know, it was
2: like mm-hmm.
1: pretty rough car, but it was a car. And, um, and a utility bill from an apartment and he granted the patient. So I've been on my own since I was 16 Um, that insurance job was the best thing in the world because I had no idea that that little job with that guy who took a chance on a very, very rough 15 year old kid would lead to a 40 year career in the insurance industry. And so um, for most of my career, I have insured, protected, defended and helped to manage risk for private nonprofit child welfare organizations. or, in other words, in my language, it's the, the good people and organizations that take care of abused kids. Mm-hmm. Um, I've analyzed the way foster kids and caregivers get injured or killed. Um, that's probably the most significant thing that I've been able to do over the past 25 years is is to identify the hours of the day the months of the year um where kids in foster care are most likely to get injured and then to provide that data to the people with all the initials after their names who know how to write program around you know that information Mm -hmm. um so it's been very rewarding to i mean as as much as it's been very 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 emotionally challenging to hear about to me like the ultimate tragedy a child who's abused goes into foster care and gets killed in care Mm -hmm. um you know it's 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 very i don't know i didn't know how to um properly um articulate it it's it's really really um challenging. It's like you absorb the pain of all of that. But the good thing is, and I'm a big believer that, you know, like, like, as you shared about, you know, looking at hardship for the purpose really of identifying the takeaway, um, looking at all that tragedy hopefully has allowed us to prevent future tragedy.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And now we're looking at foster care differently. Yeah, you know, and and so um, anyway, I I think I uh, gave you way more than what you asked for. <laughs> like, sorry. <laughs>
0: where where did you look for inspiration during that abusive upbringing? And then the second question I would have is, and th- this is a question that I I hear a lot throughout different interviews that we've had is that when there is abuse in the household, how do you speak up? Who do you, who did you talk to? Like how, and what can other people do? that are in a similar position right now that may be listening to this. What are some action steps they can take in order to get out of that situation?
2: Mm.
1: That's, those are some, those are some very powerful questions. Um, For me, it was a different, it was a different time in our in our nation's history Mm -hmm. i mean for example teachers were not mandatory reporters so i could go to school with you know two black eyes covered in bruises and and um you know cigarette burn marks in my arms and nobody Mm -hmm. would call social services It, it just you it was a it was a time when in in our nation when people sort of had the attitude of what happens at your house stays at your house. Mm. So I didn't tell anybody. I was very ashamed. I was ashamed that my parents left. I was ashamed of how I lived. I was ashamed that nobody wanted me. So the last thing I was going to do was talk to anybody about it. Um, How I coped. Which I don't know might be helpful to somebody. There were a number of of coping skills that I picked up. Mm -hmm. Um, I learned how to redirect conversation. So um, you know, if if I learned how to read people and read micro expressions, so that I could tell within literally 10 to 15 seconds of coming on from school, if it was going to be bad that night. Mm-hmm. And so if it was going to be bad, I could pick up on, you know, um, conversations, words that identified that it sounded like it was going to be, you know, it wasn't going to be good that night. And so the redirect that I learned was bringing up something about, oh, you know, hey, did you see what that neighbor down the street did? You know, something that, everybody could agree they didn't like that person
2: mm-hmm.
1: or um, or you know something of that nature that was that was totally off topic and and they followed it very often they would follow the redirect and all of a sudden the tension was diffused um, I wasn't one of those kids that had this you know that was funny and witty and and could you know, make a joke and crack everybody up and release the tension that way but but I learned to do I know a lot of people use humor you know um, mm-hmm. as a as a coping, coping skill mechanism. yeah, for me it was it was more about redirection um, so hopefully that'll be helpful to somebody you know who's listening. I learned when to hide, I learned when to run I learned when to you know get out of the house and just stay gone. Um, I learned, you know, there's just, they're just things that you pick up in order to mm-hmm. survive.
0: Mm-hmm. Now were Now we a lot of these situations. What, what caused a lot of this anger? What was it? Was it the alcohol? Was it the things that you were actually not doing right? Like,
1: um, you know, I was burned with a skillet of hot oil when I was four years old. So I don't know what I could have done wrong at four years old mm-hmm. to deserve that kind of punishment. Um, it, it's, it's difficult to describe um, living with a mentally ill person. It's difficult to describe living with a drug addict or an alcoholic. And there are a lot of people now with this current opioid crisis, I I think when I hear um, my friends at the DEA say that 165 people die every single day on average in the United States, you know, I hear that statistic. But I think right away about those are 165 mommies and daddies Mm -hmm. who die. And then, how many other mommies and daddies are stoned out of their mind, unconscious, um, you know, completely unresponsive? Uh, there's no food in the house. I, I think about what those kids are going through mm-hmm. because I've lived with an addict, I've lived with an alcoholic, I've lived with somebody who was mentally ill and just did crazy things that had absolutely no um predictability no relationship to reality so and and he didn't i mean god love him he didn't have to use drugs or alcohol to be crazy he was already crazy and so um it's 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 one of those things that is sort of to me it's not talked about enough it's it's a silent issue in our culture I mean, certainly people who are uh, child welfare professionals are aware of it. We're aware of the numbers of the spiking numbers of kids who are coming into foster care as Mm -hmm. a result of parental drug use. Um, But I'm, you know, having been in insurance for all these years and analyzing tragedy, child welfare for all these years, I am far more interested in learning how we can prevent that.
2: Yeah. You
1: now, how how we can go upstream and and help kids and families in distress before it gets to that.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: I think one of the things that you mentioned, which is very interesting, is changing the narrative. Sounds like because one of the things I've experienced throughout this work is that even though there are so many organizations that exist, the the narrative still kind of remains the same, and it it focuses on. You know, like the the problems within the space and there's, I think in order for change to happen within this particular system, you have to make that story or that narrative relatable to people, to those who may who may have no connection to this Mm -hmm. and then engage them into action. And that's that's where I think. Yeah, I mean, that's and that's a skill. That's a skill you develop over time through practice And because I I can't tell you a number of times I've sat in uh, hearings here at the Capitol that deal with a lot of uh, foster care cases. And what ends up happening is that you have people who go in there and in some cases, this is their first time sharing their opinion on what that experience was like and the things that need to change. And so it comes off them being very angry at the system and i think when you hear mm. a, a narrative like that it, you know it's not calm it's not collective it's harder for you as a listener to engage and take any any action because your immediate thought is okay this is just one person who didn't have a good experience mhm right so i i think that's one of the steps that i guess we could take as a community is is change that narrative, make it more understandable mm. for people, just like you said you know i i haven't i i I have been in in abusive environments, especially when I was at the orphanage but i I've never been within a foster family, so I can't tell you mm-hmm. what it's like um mm-hmm. you, you you know you you haven't been in certain things that I haven't been in. So it's it's up to us I think as individuals to find ways and relate those experiences to one another so we can understand it.
1: Mm that's a really good point.
0: How how so how did you get out of like how I know that you said you weren't able to speak with anyone or share the things that were happening within that household what changed? Did you, did you end up a uh, holding a lot of that until you were older and then you became or you came to a position of not power but you know when you were independent and building yourself up then you started sharing it or did someone else come into your life and said okay I'm here to help you
1: yeah that's a really good point a really good question um, no I didn't share it I was 27 years old and I had never told anyone anything. My husband didn't know. My best friend didn't know. I, it was, it was very shameful for me. And I think for a lot of people and, and, you know, maybe partially that's from the time that I came from. Um, it wasn't, um, there wasn't a lot of understanding Mm. about it back then. So I always thought if, if you knew that my mother didn't want me, you won't want me either. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and and being labeled unadoptable by my social worker and having the having the file closed, um, I heard the word unadoptable spoken. But from the time that word left the social worker's mouth, something happened to it in the air before it came into my ear. Because what I heard come into my ear was not only she's unadoptable, she's unlovable. She's unwanted. Nobody's ever going to want her. Nobody's ever going to love her. So you could understand then here I am in my adult life and I worked really hard. I got good grades in school. I I was the hardest worker on my job. I was there, I was the first one there. I was the last one to leave at night. I I just thought, okay, I'm unwanted and I'm unlovable and nobody's ever gonna love me. Um, So like the best I can do is just try really, 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 really hard to be um, allowed to even use up the air that I'm breathing. Mm -hmm. That was my attitude. And so um, the person who came into my life, so this was a great question because it it triggered um, what happened that made me decide to tell my story. And and I I mean, I never, I'm an introvert. I'm an off the chart introvert. I would have never, ever come right out with this unless somebody figured it out. And then I would have never written my book, Mm -hmm. uh, the very first book, From Foster Care to Millionaire, and then been on the Today Show and, you know, telling my story on stages and media outlets all over the United States. I would have never done any of that if it hadn't been for one person who figured it out and showed me that it was okay. To have been abandoned and abused and that it was not a matter of shame that it spoke more about the people who did those things than about me. Mm
2: -hmm. I
1: didn't know that. So I was 27 years old and it was the CEO of Hillview Acres Children's Home, which was, it's no longer around, but for 80 something years, it was a residential care facility. It had originally been an adoption um, agency, an orphanage and an adoption agency. And so I used to um, volunteer time there, but I never told anybody anything about my childhood, my background. And it was the CEO who said something to me, and he was very intuitive, and, and he had been adopted, and mm. then he had become a foster parent and an adoptive parent, he and his wife. Um, and he said something that I can't even remember the words that he spoke but i remember looking at him like oh my gosh you know <sighs> i saw it in his eyes he knew and and he and he didn't dismiss me mm-hmm. i always thought if anybody found out i came from the wrong side of the tracks
2: mm-hmm. i came
1: from the wrong you know wrong family um and all of that that immediately that would be the end of that relationship and it wasn't and in fact it was the beginning
2: mm -hmm.
0: what was the reason for some of the shame you were experiencing was it the fact that you didn't want to disappoint your your family about the things that was happening or you know your your foster parents or was there was there anything else
1: um The shame is in being alive, being born to people who don't want you. Mm-hmm. And I think it's interesting to me that you, at your age, ask asking, even asking that question of somebody my age.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Because I can't, like I said, I came from a different time. I came from the 1960s when it was still illegal, where you live in Texas, it was illegal for a Mexican man to date a white girl. Mm. It was illegal for a black man to date a white girl.
2: Mm-hmm. I mean,
1: this, this it's like I'm talking about something that was 500 years ago, right? I'm like <laughs> an alien from out of <laughs> state having a conversation with a millennial. Because I'm saying, to me, it's, it's, like in those days, okay, if you were the child of parents who got a divorce, people looked at you differently because you came from a broken family.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Mindset, you no, know, I, I came from the 60s, but the mindset up uh, probably really prevalent in the 50s, I don't know, maybe before then, and, and into the 60s was that if if a child was um, mistreated, and depending on the severity of that mistreatment, the child was too broken to be fixed.
2: Hmm.
1: In fact, I heard that at a conference. So all the years that I insured um, the good people and organizations that take care of abused children, I always went to their conferences, and I would sit in on continuing ed um, workshops of social workers and psychologists and whatnot. And, I, and it's, I wanted to learn. So I sat in on everything I could sit in on and I read everything I could read. And, and I knew I would never be a social worker or, or a psychologist because um, I just am not wired to do that kind of thing.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, but I wanted to learn. And I remember sitting in this workshop early on and I was at that time not much older than you are now. And and this um, psychiatrist uh, was talking about kids being too broken to be fixed, and I was I was um, it's like I was wounded, I was hurt, I was angry. I sat there with a smile on my face, and I took copious notes, and and um, but inside it it was. Um, it sort of changed the trajectory of my life because I, inside of me, something happened. And I thought, no, no, we're not. As a matter of fact, we're stronger than the average person. We're certainly more resilient than the average person we're a heck of a lot more resourceful than the average person. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't be as strong as I am today if I hadn't gone through what I went through. I have empathy that cannot be acquired in a university classroom because I've been there, you know, I've gone five days straight without food. Mm -hmm. Um, I've been beaten and burned. I've been, you know, I've been homeless. I was homeless when I was eight years old. I've eaten food out of trash cans. Um, You know, I've, I've, I've had both eyes swollen shut when I was a little bitty girl. So effectively blinded for a couple of days. I know what all that feels like. And as a result i'm i'm just you know i'm i'm stronger i'm i was fully equipped to do the work that i've done to protect child welfare organizations because i knew what it felt like to be uh, a a ward of the court mm-hmm a part of that child welfare system where you have no voice, where you have no control, you have no say over anything. And, and so I say all that to say that going back to your original question, the shame, the shame that was there for me, I hope is not there for kids who are in the system. Now, I suspect that there's an element of that for a lot of them though. Um, even though the culture has changed, even though we all look at things differently, like, okay, it's totally normal for a kid to come from a family where mom and dad got a divorce and it's totally normal now for, you know, for both parents to remarry somebody else and you have step brothers and sisters, you have half brothers and sisters, like you almost need a program to figure it out who belongs to, it's all totally normal now, right? So we look at all of it, like it's totally normal to have mixed race marriages and mixed race kids. So, the world I came from was a very different world. Um, so, you know, I hope that all that shame is not there, but I suspect for kids who were sexually abused and kids who have been trafficked,
2: mm-hmm.
1: especially the kids who don't even self identify as having been trafficked, um, and I know a lot of them don't. Yeah. I, I, I wrote a curriculum called the Your Real Success Program that's a nine-module curriculum that, that helps people mine the, the, the assets out of the hardships, the painful experiences that they've been through. And I love doing that curriculum with, with um, young people who have been trafficked. Even though they don't identify themselves that way, I know there's shame because most of them walk in the first day and they don't even make eye contact with me. Mm. Um, And to watch them find out that they are not too broken to be fixed, as a matter of fact, they are the survivors in this world and survivors make the best first responders we make you know we make the the best employees we're the hardest working people you know on the job and Mm -hmm. and i mean there are so many benefits and when people who do experience that shame find out what we have that most of the rest of the people the average people you know in our culture and also our society that that we have things that they don't really have and that we're stronger and a lot of very important, very valuable areas and that we have skills that are highly valuable, highly easily transferable into the workplace. Then I think that whatever shame is there hopefully falls away mm-hmm. and they do see how awesome they are. Be
0: Before we dive into your work, successful survivors and, some of the reasons why it started, I wanted to first define what does it mean to be successful in your eyes?
1: Um, Success for me, real success. This is why I named my curriculum Your Real Success. Um, In our world today, I see people who think that if you have 40 million followers on Twitter, that's real success. (laughs) Or... People who sure. are you know in need of money think that if you're a billionaire or a millionaire that you know that that's real success. and um, it's just not. There are five facets of success. The very first one, the most important one, is good health because if you if you aren't taking care of your body, Um, you can, you can be a billionaire and you can have 40 million followers on Twitter and you can, you know, have, um, you know, be surrounded by people who love you and you're super popular and whatever, but if you're dying, it doesn't matter. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: The second one, good relationships with healthy people. I'm not a psychologist. I'm not a social worker. I just know in my very simple layman terms, um, People get hurt in bad relationships, and people are healed in good relationships. And it has to be good relationships with good, healthy people. So that's the number two aspect. Um, And some people would argue with me about the order. Maybe relationships are the most important, but those are really the top two. Mm -hmm. The next, the third facet of success, in my view, is peace. And I didn't even know what peace was for the first 40 years of my life. I was surrounded by chaos. I, I created a lot of my own chaos and a lot of my own drama. That's what I was raised in. That's what I was comfortable in. You know, it, I just did it. Now I understand. Oh, my goodness. You can have all the other four pieces of real success. But if you don't have peace, you don't have the fullness of success. The fourth is joy real joy which is much more than superficial happiness so you can be super happy and everything's going along just fine and you get cut off in traffic or somebody cuts in front of you in line and you're not happy anymore Mm -hmm. so joy is 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 not interfered with by external circumstances so when you have real joy is the fourth facet of real success you can handle just about anything that comes your way because you're just gonna you know you're gonna it might not feel good it might be sad but you're but you're gonna handle it with a positive attitude because of that joy and then the final aspect of success and the least important one in my opinion is the financial provision to do what you were created to do I used to say the fifth aspect was wealth Mm -hmm. or money, but, but the reality is, you know, you, you, we only need enough financial provision to do what we were created to do. So for example, you know, if you're called to be a priest in the Catholic church and you take a vow of poverty, you don't really, you don't need any money (laughs) to do that. Right. Mm -hmm. You can have a huge influence in people's lives and not have any money at all. Um, On the other hand, if, if you're going to, um, you know, start a television network and you're going to influence people's lives through the media and you want to influence millions and millions of lives, you know, and you have to have Oprah Winfrey's money, then, you know, a million is not enough. It's not nearly enough, you know, and 1 billion is not enough and probably not nearly enough. And so, you know, how much is enough? And if, if you don't know what you were born to do and perfectly equipped and matched to do, then no amount of money will ever be enough. And so that's what success means to me, those five
2: aspects.
0: Well, one of the questions I have, and this is regarding joy and peace, and that is you bring up a very good point, and I used to be the same way. I used to think in terms of, for example, if I'm stuck in traffic, and this was years and years ago, and someone cuts you off you're you're kind of prone to have these uh negative thoughts towards or at least i was towards the person that cut me off and so what i began to do was i began to ask myself a set of questions why am i having those thoughts you know is how is it impacting myself in order to really try and understand and i think more so like balance out um those thoughts that i was having so the question I had for you was, is there a set of questions that people can ask themselves in order to not avoid but become more aware of those situations?
1: Yes, that's a great question. And for me, it's not a set of questions. It's one question. hmm What happened to that person to make her that way? Mm. What happened to that person to make him that way? Um, it's it really is a, a paradigm shift that you go from being angry, and it's a natural thing. Wait a minute, you cut in front of me in line now, you, uh, especially for somebody who's already been mistreated
2: mm-hmm.
1: in in their life. They will, you know. I mean, for many, many years, I just automatically went into, you know, this mindset of what am I chopped liver over here? Hilarious. Like, you don't see me. Am I invisible? Oh, you think I'm nothing? I'm worthless that you could just cut in front of me in line. I didn't say those things. I'm an introvert. It's Mm -hmm. all in my head going on. Oh, yeah. And then I would shift into, yeah, that's right. I'm worthless. I'm nobody. Go ahead. Why don't you just invite everybody to get in front of me? I'm nobody. My time is not important. I mean, I could go on and on and on like that. And I did that for years and years and years with the self-pity and all that business. And so um, the, the whole movement nowadays um, toward um, trauma-informed approaches with kids, has, has I've adapted that in my mind. I don't take a trauma informed approach only with people I know who are in foster care or who have been in foster care. I take a trauma informed approach with everybody on earth. So if the cashier at the grocery store is snippy or rude or just ignores me, I don't get offended. I, I, you know, you would have to notify me ahead of time if you wanted to offend me. <laughs> Cause I don't, I just, I don't get offended. I just don't get offended anymore. That's part of that piece. Mm-hmm. I used to get offended probably a minimum of 99 times a day, you know, <laughs> because I was just walking around creating my own chaos.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and when I decided that, I I actually saw peace and I wanted that. Then I realized, oh, I have to let go of self pity. I have to let go of offense. And actually, for me, it's something, it's a scripture in the Bible. I couldn't even tell you where it is, but there's some place in the Bible that says, don't take offense. And I was like, "Don't take offense. How could I not take offense? People are rude. People are, you know. I mean, you just you don't even have to take three steps before somebody offends you and they say something ugly. And I mean, nowadays, my goodness, the bull, the cyber bullying, and Mm -hmm. you know, you say one thing on Twitter that you, you know, came out wrong or it didn't, you know, it's a joke and it didn't translate well or whatever. I don't know. I'm not. I'm not really a Twitter person, but a lot of times jokes for me." You can say something verbally in context of a whole conversation and, you know, people think that's pretty funny. And you try to type that exact same thing out (laughs) into 140 characters and it's not funny because now it's not in context, right? And so I'm not saying what I'm saying to defend anybody or what they've said or not said or whatever. It's just an observation that I have that I think, okay, we don't have – probably the time to figure out how to put everything everybody says into, into um, context and, and whatever. I just decided I'm going to give people the benefit of the doubt. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: And unless you let me know that you really are trying to offend me, if you say something that's rude or obnoxious, or, you know, the average person would take some kind of offense at it, I'm going to look at it and say, what happened to you in your life that made you that way? And we just might find in asking that question that that person just found out that they've been diagnosed with cancer. Or maybe that person's um, most important important person in that person's life is, is, um, is dying or maybe their spouse just, they just found out that their spouse is cheating or maybe they just found out that their child is using drugs or maybe they just got fired. We don't know the, the private personal struggles that people are dealing with
2: mm-hmm.
1: and we don't need to know. In order to have empathy and sympathy, we can just choose to just not be offended. Mm-hmm. Right? And th- so that's, I guess,
0: I think that's the a very important, le- very important lesson. And I've begun to implement this in my life. And that is, I, whenever there was, um, Whenever I would receive let's say negative feedback or um something along those lines, the question I always ask myself and you, you've nailed it and that is first you I think you have to become aware of your thoughts and your state of being and understand okay is it me am i am I truly doing something wrong, and if it's not you, then it's it's something that the other person's going through and so when i when I <laughs> noticed that i I mean, it had an immediate impact on me and it made me understand Mm. that, okay, if it's not you and if it's the other person, how can you help the other person? Maybe going straight to the point is not the the way to do it. For some people, you know, asking them a question like, what is really bothering you or or what am I, what, what is um, wrong? But more so starting that conversation slowly, because one of the things I've learned is that we're all at very different points of engagement within our lives when it comes to a lot mm-hmm. of topics. So you just have to figure out those ways. Okay, if it's if it's a personal hardship that they're going through, how do you even approach that? Where do you start? Do you start by saying, how is your day going? Do you start by going mm-hmm. in deeper? You know, what, like, somehow figuring out, is it family-related? Is it work-related? And so that that's, and I, I love that you said that because that's, a I think it's a very important approach to take and I do think I do think and know because I live it when you become self more self aware of your actions, the world truly becomes a better place
2: mm.
1: that's excellent
0: yeah, i agree Final final thought for today's episode, and that is when the odds are completely against you. What are some core fundamental principles that you always refer to?
1: I go straight to God, I go straight to prayer. Um, and then okay, so my my uh, it's a very simple formula for success. So I pray and then I listen. And by listening, I'm not expecting a booming voice out of the sky. Mm-hmm. I'm expecting God to plant some ideas in my head. Mm. Uh, so the ideas that I get in my prayer time or directly afterwards, like call this person, send an email to that person. Um, it's it's uncanny. I can't tell you. Um, I mean, I've lived a lot of years on Earth, so I can tell you by now there have been... <laughs> So many times that I literally can't tell you the times where I've picked up the phone and just randomly called somebody and they and they literally pick up like not their secretary, not their assistant. They are never sitting at their desk. They're never <laughs> picking up the phone and boom, they pick up the phone for me. And so um, so I, I pray I listen. The third is I act. Mm -hmm. So, regardless of how wild and crazy it might be, um, you know, write a letter to the president, (laughs) whatever it is, whatever, whatever I hear, when I'm listening for answers, I act on it. Without regard for um, how foolish it it may appear to some people, I, I don't care, because I figure God didn't give that direction to that person. Mm -hmm. So if it seems absurd to somebody else, that's okay. That's really their problem. I'm only—it's their life, and and I'm responsible for me. I'm Mm -hmm. just responsible for me. So um, so that's it. It's pray, listen, act, and then repeat and, and that's my, that's my formula for success. And I've built two very successful businesses, um, built, um, an incredible, you know, investment portfolio. And, um, I have all five facets of success. I've been married to my awesome husband for almost 28 years now, have an amazing family. Yeah. I mean, we just, if I if I told you how good my life really was, <laughs> you would literally think that I was lying or bragging <laughs> or delusional because to go, you know, I mean, I really think the United States of America is probably the only place on Earth where you could go from being a homeless little girl eating out of a trash can to, um, yes. you know, living in the places where I live. One hundred percent. Um Yeah. Living the life that I live and. And, um, you know, just about to release my I think it's eighth book, Kindness Quotient, will be released on July 31st. And then later this year, um, probably right before Christmas, we'll be releasing 30 Days to Happiness. And so, I um, i mean, where else could mm-hmm. I have that? You know, it's just an amazing life. We're launching the Love is Action Community Initiative that engages stakeholders in helping uh, kids and families in distress, hopefully before they're abused, before they're trafficked, before people become homeless. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and then my Your Real Success curriculum, um, being able to really change the trajectory of people's lives, actually helping them change their own trajectory and, and mining the lessons out of what they've been through and, and um, putting together the clues. For their purpose, you know why they were born. That's really amazing. It's really awesome, and um, I—that's—I I want everybody within my influence to find and fulfill their good purpose and have their five facets of success.
2: Mm-hmm. My
1: success is helping other people get theirs. <laughs>
0: Thank you all for listening to today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you haven't done so already, feel free to subscribe to our weekly newsletter so you can receive all of our latest episodes, featured stand-up and speak-up stories, and ways you can be involved with overcoming odds. Once again, thank you for listening, and we look forward to having you next week.